going to ask all of you to take your sheet there, study sheet we passed out, turn it over on the back, and jot down a particular, maybe more than one, but at least if you can, one Bible promise, one promise made to us in the Scripture that's uh, precious to you, or that you have found to be a great comfort or help in your life. Now, you may know the reference. That would be great if you have it. If you don't have it, if you go and remember what it says, you can jot that down. But uh, we'll come back to that in a little bit, and uh, we'll see what you might have for us there. We can uh, all partake of. But right now, we, we're ready to begin in chapter 24 and verse 32. However, before we actually begin, we want to back up to a question that we had last week that we were uh, a little bit perplexed with. In Matthew chapter 24, and verse 31, and he will send his angels with a great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven the other. Now that's the New King James. And the reason in the New American Standard it says from one end of the sky to the other. And that was the question we were discussing as we came to a close last week. And you know I was just guessing at whatever I said uh, about it. But, uh, I thought it was uh, a good question and one that uh, we probably ought to come back to and see if we can come up with an answer. So, what I did is I looked up this word from one end, from one end. In other words, sky and heaven references the first heaven, our atmosphere. Because Jesus coming back, previous verse, uh, he, he comes back, he's coming uh, slowly descending from out of the sky. So, that's what's in view here. It's not, it's not about the heaven where uh, the Lord is, the third heaven. It's not about outer space where we call that uh, the second heaven. But it, it's, it's our atmosphere. It, it's our sky. But what does it mean when it says he will gather his elect from the four winds? Well, the four winds, it's used over in the book of Revelation, by the way. It just means from the four directions. It encompasses the whole of the earth. And... Then, then this is added to it from one end of the heaven to the other. It's just an additional uh, statement, or additional explanation, which really means the same thing as the four winds. It, it encompasses the whole of the earth. But if that's the true, why did he say from the end of heaven or from one end of the sky to the other? Well, I looked up the word end, as I mentioned a moment ago, and it, it's a word in the Greek which means <coughs> the end point of something. The, uh, let's see if I say it a little better, the uttermost part or the, the farthest reach of something. So, he again is referencing the entire earth 
in just a different way. So imagine yourself living in a day and age where people didn't recognize the earth was round. They didn't re recognize, them, for the most part, they were living on uh, a globe. Their understanding of the expanse of the earth would begin way over the east where the sun came up, where the sky met the horizon, and then to the west where the sun sets, where the sky meets the horizon. The same would be true north and south, except the sun wouldn't be there. It's just a way of saying the whole of the earth, because that's all they could see and that's all they knew that was there in that day. Um, it's just, it's just, I think as simple as that. It's just a, a metaphor or an explanation. Uh, the end of all was where the end of the sky and the end of the earth met, as far as you could see, east to the west. And of course we know that encompasses, no matter if you, you traveled to that, as far as you could go in that direction, there would still be an east and a west. It encompasses the whole. So, uh, just an interesting question, and uh, one I thought we'd go back to. Uh, we ready to move on? Let's move on to today. Beginning at verse 32. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now those are the verses we're going to deal with here, and your fill-in there on the, the top is fig tree, the parable of the fig tree. <laughs> Let me just, before we move into a discussion of that, just reference here. When you see all these things, all these things are the things he just covered from verse 15 to verse 31, the second half of the tribulation period, all those signs. And it probably encompasses even further back to that. So that's what he means when he says all these things. All right. Here's the question. Does the parable of the fig tree have anything to do with Israel becoming a nation in 1948? You say, well, why would you ask that question? <laughs> well, if you are of my age, you might probably recall, and I remember as a, a young man, reading uh, various authors and hearing people say that it was highly significant that Israel became a nation, again, in 1948, and the fig tree in Scripture is obviously a reference to Israel, the nation. Although it's not exactly obvious in this verse, but that was what they were gathered from other contexts, I guess. Therefore, we can back up. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What generation? Well, the generation of the fig tree. So, the generation that saw Israel 
become a nation again would be the generation that would see the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was a common interpretation. And they used the other scripture references to specify the generation in scripture was 40 years. Now what's wrong with that interpretation? 40 years passed in 1988. Okay? So obviously that interpretation clearly off base. But back before 1988, back in the 70s and 60s, uh, there was a lot of people that took this position. Now, so we come to the parable of the fig tree. So what are we going to make of it? First off, the parable of the fig tree has nothing to do with Israel becoming a nation in 1948. Now, that being said, it's highly significant that Israel is a nation again that has been since 1948. Because obviously all the things that Jesus just described in terms of what would happen in the, in the tribulation involves the nation of Israel being there. And before 1948, there was no nation going all the way back to AD 70. That's nearly 2,000 years of non-existence. So, yeah, it's highly significant, but the idea that from 1948, 40 years, I've even, had, I've even run across people who said, well, we were wrong about the length of the generation. <laughs> Might be longer. Uh, there's more, more of a problem with it than that. So, he says, now learn the parable of the fig tree in verse 32. When its branch has already become tender, puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now dropping down to verse 34, truly I say unto you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The word generation in the Greek language can simply mean people. Or ethnic group. You know what I'm saying? It, it's not necessarily, it's, it is used sometimes in terms of an expanse of time, but it also can be and is often used in terms of just a genesis of people, a generation of people. So I suggest to you the way to understand that is not a generation of so many, you know, uh, I don't even know what you call it. Gener you know, you, when you look at ancestry, you know, you look back, it's so many generations or so many, you know, grandfathers twice removed and all that. I, I don't know what the right terminology is, but it's not talking about one, two, three, four, five generations. It's just it's talking about the Jewish nation. Now, if we understand it that way, then we can make sense of the parable of the fig tree. So, Let's talk about the parable of fig tree. Luke 21, verse 29, which is Luke's inspired record of the Olivet Discourse. He does not say simply the fig tree. He says, behold the fig tree and all the trees. So this is not specific to a fig tree. The likely scenario was there's a lot of fig trees in and about and on the Mount of Olives. But they're not the only trees there. Uh, Jesus 
may have referenced a fig tree. He may have went on to reference any tree. Luke records the whole of the statement, and Matthew, still under the inspiration of God, just doesn't record the whole. But we know that it's it's not, even if the fig tree is representative of Israel in other contexts, it can't be the case here because of what Luke says. Therefore, the characteristic to which Jesus points, the characteristic of the fig tree to which Jesus points, can be found in trees in general. What is that point? Well, it's, it's pretty straightforward. New growth indicates that the growing season is at hand. I have a little tree in my front yard. I have two little trees. I had two little trees in my front yard. One which came out this spring and one which did not survive the freeze. But for several weeks, I go out every day hoping to find some new growth on that tree. It never, never happened. The tree was dead. I had to, had to dig it up. The other tree began to put out leaves. It began to, you know, had the new growth. Now, what, what did that demonstrate? That the tree was going to come out and leaf, and that warmer weather was at hand soon? It, it, we, we all understand that. That's all Jesus is saying here. He is simply saying that all the things I just told you that are going to happen in the tribulation period, when people in that day and age see those things happening, they know Jesus is about to come back. I don't know maybe the moment, but they know it's about to happen. Would the new leaves, the new growth, be uh, Gentile believers? They're included in this? We'll say that one more time. Okay, you have the fig tree. If it's Israel, would the new growth of trees be uh, new believers, which would be Gentiles, non-Jews, possibly? I mean, that's what I'm... Well, I don't think he, he meant to make that connection. Personally, I think it, it, it's just a very simple thing he's saying. He's saying, when these trees start to come out, you know summer's at hand. It's a, it's a parable. The parable of the fig tree. Parable, parables, remember, have one specific application or contrast. So what you're describing would mean there would be other implications involved in it. Now, I just, since it's a parable, I would say no. Uh, if it wasn't a parable, then something like that might be a way that you can look at it. So when the things Jesus outlined in chapter 24 verses 4 to, 20, 4 to 31 happen, the kingdom will soon be established. That's what they were wanting, the kingdom. Going back to their original question. That, he's just simply making that point. He could have said it a lot of ways. He could have said it in plain English, as we say. And he used the parable. Uh, why? Because we forget what someone states as a statement, like prose, but someone tells you a story or makes an analogy, it sticks in your head. Jesus just being a good teacher. The word generation can refer to a people as well as a generation of time. So the singular point of the parable is found in verses 34 and 35. 
which is a promise that the nation of Israel will not perish before all these things come to pass. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Truly I say unto you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Pass away, pass away. Verse 35 is a commentary on the meaning of the parable. So what he is saying is that the Jewish nation will not pass away before Jesus comes back. Why do I say the Jewish nation? Remember, he covered the whole of the tribulation period down to verse 15. First half, second half. Verse 15, we have that recursive section where he goes back to the midpoint, the abomination and desolation, then he moves forward again through the second half again, looking at it primarily from the perspective of the Jewish nation and the invasion that comes and all the persecution that will be taking place there uh, in Judea. So this is an important promise that Jesus has made to the Jewish people. Satan has tried to stamp out the Jewish nation, the Jewish race, if I could use that some improper terminology, but the people, the cave of Abraham. He, he tried to do that in the days of Esther, you remember, under the Persians. And uh, of course God sovereignly used Esther to circumvent Satan's plans. Uh, we see it going back to World War II. The, the hatred for the Jewish people, I mean, I don't know about you, but all my life, I was born in 1953, so this, I was born shortly after all that, and for many, many years, I go, why, why did the Germans hate the Jews so bad? And I, I never really got a good answer. I got some answers, but never really very good answers. Um, and historically, we can find reasons, but really, ultimately, there's no logical explanation for that kind of hatred other than it's satanically inspired. <coughs> and Satan will again try to get rid of the nation of Israel during the tribulation period. We just saw that in verses 16 to 31. But God prepares a place for them to flee in the mountains. He sends protection. Now, it doesn't mean they all survive, but there will be a remnant that will survive. God's going to make sure of that. And that's what the parable of the fig tree is reiterating. And if God says it, it's going to happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, by the way. There will be new heavens and new earth made after that. But the heaven and earth as we live on it today, as we exist in this place, will pass away. But God's promises will not pass away. God's word will not pass away. So, what assuring promises has God given us? What did you jot down on your paper? Anybody want to share what you wrote down? I'm kind of interested to see what we get. Okay. I don't know that where it's at, but it's in there. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's in the book of Hebrews. I can't remember the reference. The book of Hebrews. And it's a favorite of mine. I, I mean, it, 
We need that assurance often in life. <laughs> Just like the Jewish people, that day is going to need that assurance that God's not going to abandon them. He said that to us. All right, great. Somebody else have one? Romans 38, Romans 8, 38, 39. I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. It's okay. I didn't catch you were saying it all. <laughs> Romans 8, 38, 39. Nothing can separate us from the law of God. Yeah. Through Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not going to happen. Uh, anybody else? Okay. Yeah, I just read this uh, yesterday in Psalms 58, 11. Uh, mankind will say, surely there is reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. So it's certain that we'll get the reward and there will be a judgment. Yeah. Surely a reward for the righteous. And there's justice. There's judgment too. Anybody else have one? Uh, in my study this uh, last week, I was reading Psalm 32, David's Psalm. It says in verses 7 and 8, You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you. This is the, the Lord speaking. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. God's protection. Yes, that's fantastic. Okay. First Peter 5 7. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Bob, you do have one? Psalm 34 18. <coughs> the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Yes. Matthew 5, 6 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Yeah. <laughs> They're all over the place. Thank you. Isaiah 41, 10 Fear them not, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look back into the reign of God. I will help you overstand. We all have so many struggles, so many burdens. So many cares in this life, and so many prayer requests, important prayer requests, and God invites us to let our requests be made known to Him, and He says what if we do? The peace of God that passes understanding shall keep and guard your heart. That's, that's one of my favorites as well. Uh, these, are, these are all fantastic verses, and they're, they're, they're all over the Scripture. God has given us reassurance after reassurance after reassurance over and over and over again of his love, his protection, his blessing. All that we could ever hope to draw upon, it's, it's, it's all there. And it's amazing that Jesus in the Olivet Discourse looks forward to a generation that still, still hasn't, uh, I'm using that word in the sense of time here, <laughs> but uh, He's looking forward to a time in which a generation of people, his people, will live under threat of extermination. And he takes the moment in the midst of all this prophetic detail to insert in a promise which when the day comes, those people will find that promise and draw strength and hope 
on a daily basis during those years of suffering. Isn't that amazing? And think about it. Not a single one of those people in that day who have come to believe in Christ, Jewish people, not a single one of them will have been a Christian for seven years. Right? They're pretty much... Well, the first seven years of my Christian experience didn't get me very far. Uh, Maturity-wise, right? God cares for those people in that, in that circumstance and gives them a promise they can look at. Thousands of years ago, he gave it to them. They'll discover it. They'll find it. They'll draw strength from it. An amazing God. Let's move on. Beginning in verse 36. But the day, but of that day and hour no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. By the way, Noah did build an ark. God did send a flood. And only Noah and his family survived. And the animals inside. Just like God said. And Jesus, Jesus, in referencing that, tells us if we knew nothing else, we would know that's what happened. There was a universal flood that destroyed all of mankind except for Noah and his family. Sorry, little footnote. <laughs> And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So this on your sheet... Is the fill in of the word return. The first one was the fig tree. We're down to the return of Christ. I'm going to give you two views of the of these verses here, involving the one is taken, one is left. There are two views among dispensationalists. Two views among dispens- there are two views among dispensationalists as to what Jesus referred to in this section. The first view is that it is referring to the second coming at the end of the tribulation. Now, if you go back to verse 31 where we started with that question, what does it say? Then he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds. But if you back up a little bit in the context, you realize the ones that are not gathered, the others will be judged and, and so forth. And we'll come to more information on that. So one view says that this whole scenario, one is taken, one is left, has to do with the judgment of 
people left on this earth surviving in mortal bodies at the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes. The ones that are left are the believers that are left to enter into the millennium. The ones that are taken away are the ones that are taken away in judgment. Contextually, this view is based on this section coming immediately after the description of the second coming. Now hold that thought. The ones taken are viewed as those taken in judgment when Jesus returns while believers are left to enter the kingdom. This was what I was taught by my professor who taught eschatology at seminary, who I highly respect. Uh, one of the men who had a major impact on my life. And therefore, I accepted and followed this view for almost all my ministry. To capture it in a chart, it would be this one. He discussed the first half of the tribulation in verses 4 to 8. Then he discussed the second half of the tribulation in verses 9 to 14. Then he went back to the midpoint, verse 15, and discussed the abomination and desolation, and all the way to verse 35, covering the second half of the tribulation again. This time from a decidedly Jewish perspective. Then verses 36 to 42 just continue on toward the future. This would actually come at the end of the tribulation period. That's the first view. The second view sees another recursive aspect of Jesus' teaching that returns to just before the tribulation begins. When I say recursive, this is common in Hebrew literature. If you read Genesis 1, three to, 1 verse 3 to chapter 2 verse 3, it's an account of the creation. But then in verse 4, he goes back and gives a more detailed account of the same. This is something you find often in the Old Testament. They'll give a summary, then they'll go back and start over again and give more detail. So what Matthew is doing was common. As far as, I, I mean, he's, he's a Hebrew. Why not? That's what he did when he came to the end of the overall view, overall synopsis of the whole tribulation period. And then he went back to the midpoint, gave more detail that second half. You might want to read that again, refresh your memory. It's, uh, I don't have it on your sheet. You might want to jot it down. But, uh, it's not something novel here to Matthew. Okay. The second view, which 
just, we just covered this. The second view sees another recursive aspect of Jesus' teaching that returns to just before the tribulation begins. Just before the tribulation begins. The ones taken then are viewed as church age saints who are removed at the rapture. The days of Noah are regarded as a time of normalcy that does not seem to fit the situation at the time of the second coming. They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're giving them just normal life. But there is no normal life in that second half of the tribulation. Normal life is pretty much suspended with all the persecution and all the judgments going on. So, view number two says the imminent nature of what is described does not fit the timing and signs that Jesus had already revealed that precede the second coming. Uh, just to refresh our memories, imminent means any moment, unannounced. Well, that's what you read here, unannounced. There are two people working together, they're, they're doing their job at the mill, they're doing their job in the field farming, and suddenly one's gone. Unexpected, unannounced. That fits the imminent nature. The imminent nature of what is described does not fit the timing and signs. When Jesus, you go back to verses 30, he's coming and the whole world sees him coming and mourns his coming. It's very slow, very deliberate. Plus, you know, you had that sign in the sky, but you had all the signs preceding that leading up to it. So the second coming of Jesus it's hard to say that's imminent because you go back to the prophecy of Daniel, the 70 weeks, the last week, the 260 days, you know, the three and a half years and all that. If anybody was a student of scripture in the second half of that tribulation period, they should pretty much know when Jesus is coming. Now, the second view was in vogue Back at the turn of the ninth, turn of the twenties, I don't know, whenever it became the 1900s. <laughs> Up through the late 1800s into the early 1900s, the second view was the predominant view among dispensations. The latter part of the 1900s, the first view is the most followed view, it's the most predominant view. And that's why I was taught that in seminary, and I followed it, and I taught it for many years. You perhaps have been taught that as well. Some of you may have not. Some of you may have been taught view number two. But uh, here's the point. There's things about prophecy that nobody can ever say 100% sure. And this may be one of them. I, I have basically changed my thinking on this, obviously, as I've indicated. And it makes more sense to me. But the point about it is, if you have a different view, it's not going to change the fact. The rapture is going to occur, whether that's what he's talking about here or not. And Jesus is coming back, and there's going to be a separation of believers and unbelievers at the end of that tribulation period and in judgment, whether that's what he's talking about or not. It doesn't change anything. Yes. Jay, if I can ask you, when was the seminal moment or the moment when you switched views? 
what happened that caused you to switch views? <laughs> the book I recommended to you uh, last week, <laughs> Sam A. Smith's book, The Automate Discourse, contains the information. But I knew Sam before he wrote the book. And Sam would talk to me about this, and I would take notes, and I would say, that's not, in fact, Sam, by the way, Sam was taught the first few too, just like I was. Uh, he was a graduate of Dallas Seminary, and several could be other seminaries for that matter. He, but he became a, an expert on prophecy. And so he would tell me these things, like, that's not the way I've always taught, that's not the one I've seen. And, uh, but he would explain it to me, and I'd make notes, and I had all these questions buzzing around in my mind, and didn't fully congeal until I actually took time to read the book and do my own study and see how I, I mean, you know, there's points of what he has in the book I don't necessarily accept, but uh, I'm going to change my thinking on this one. Okay. So here's what, if you follow Sam's theory, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just going to add in because I thought it was interesting because some of the folks in here may have connections to Dallas. Um, Sam, who wrote that book, had one of his first books was endorsed by John Wahlberg from Dallas. But when Sam switched from a pre-tribulational view of the rapture to just saying, I can't say 100% it's, it's pre-trib, I'm saying it's definitely pre-rap. When he switched to that, then he, he still stayed in contact with his Dallas professors, but he didn't want to go back and ask them to endorse and put them in an awkward position because they had been so traditionally pre-trib. Um, and he felt like, you know, it wasn't like one of those splitting hairs kind of things if people were still pre-trib because there's not enough there to argue over. But I, I found that to be very just interesting to think through that he was so convicted in what he was finding in the scripture that he gave up such a prestigious endorsement of his book for that conviction in what he was finding in scripture. Yeah. I just wanted to throw that in because I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that, that is true. And then this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. Um, she's talking about Sam's view of the timing of the rapture, whether it was actually before the tribulation began or only before the wrath of God began in the tribulation. And he never said either way. He just said he couldn't, couldn't pinpoint it. I, I personally, in my I feel mind, like that connect, to me that's somehow connected to what you're saying. I don't yeah. know how it did. <laughs> it's definitely connected, but it's a long discussion. Sorry. <laughs> but it's a good point that you make. Uh, my, my difference with Sam on the uh, timing of the rapture goes back to the, the confirming of the covenant with Daniel. Uh, so in my mind, I still see the the rapture is prior to that covenant in the tribulation period. But like I said, every book you read, every expert, you can find different ways of looking at something. But this is interesting, I think, here. Remember, the first view had 
these verses we're looking at today over here. Well, we've already discussed this first recursive where he, he covers the whole of the tribulation, goes back to the midpoint, covers the second half again. I believe what he's doing is he's going back and giving a further recursive, but he's going all the way back here and putting this in, information in here. Based on what we just said. Now, some of you took a picture of that last week. Some, I know one person who said it didn't turn out very good, so I sent him one in an email. So I have some here printed out if anybody wants that particular chart. And it also has this one on it. And they're up here if you want to pick one of those up. But as far as application is concerned, wait a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here we go. As far as application is concerned, what is the application? Well, verse 42 is the application. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. Well, that's, that's how we're to live our lives. The expectation of Christ coming at any moment, obviously. All right, we're about out of time. Anybody have a further question or comment? To me, the, the second view makes a lot, a lot of sense in the way that, that it does look like a double recursion. But is there an argument against why that would be? It seems like to me that that is a very logical uh, reason that that comes back to that point in time. What's the counter argument? Well, just going from memory, the counter argument is that. His disciples were Jews, and they were asking a question about what about the Jews, and he's just went back and did that second half again from a Jewish perspective, so why would he suddenly jump to the church? That, I think that's the basic contextual argument for view number one. But They're not going to time and place or whatever. They still take the tax back for the end, right? I mean, even if you start from a Jewish context, then they still have to come back to that? Well, that's, that's the point I think view number two is trying to make. And even if you look, you just covered the second half from a decidedly Jewish perspective, but he's talking, that's about the nation of people that will live in that day, but Jewish people will also be believers who have come to Christ and out of the Jewish nation before all this starts. We'll be raptured with the church because they're part of the church and the Jewish nation. So it's not like it's unconnected to the Jewish nation. Even those who, who have view number one still believe the rapture is, is imminent and, 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 you know, it, so I think the even for the years that I've had held the first view, I've always wondered how the second coming at the end of the tribulation can be imminent. How can it be the sun doesn't know, the angels don't know, but he's just laid out all this chronology. Uh, I always, in my mind, took it, well, he must have been talking about the exact day and the moment. Uh, but that always kind of bothered me. Uh, that's kind of the basic reason for view number two. So you, you don't have to sort out all the, the scholarly uh, in the hospitals for that. I wanted to comment on the word recursive. We just finished doing Revelation and Women's Bible study. We could have used that word. You know? <laughs> 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 that's what Revelation 
word. Digested that word. Revelation was written by a Jewish man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even been familiar with the Jewish way of writing. Sure. The other thing is that it makes sense because he says, look at the trees and you're going to see the leaves coming so you know summer's coming. And then he says, you don't know. You don't know when this is going to happen. So it makes sense that he's talking about two different things. It does to my mind. It might be your mind. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying. If you, oh, yeah. I held the view number one for a lot of years because you taught it to me rather than me looking at it in my own mind. So that's our tendency. Uh, be convinced in your own mind one way or the other. Okay? The Lord is coming back. Anybody else? Yes. And we'll, we'll know the answer when we get there. <laughs> I don't know if, if you have time to answer this question, but maybe a question for the for future conversations. There's a big movement in generations younger than mine, people in their 30s and 20s, to who, who have religious interests to be drawn to more liturgical religious practice. And yet, a turning away from dispensational theology at the same time. And I just, I just think that's an interesting pattern to see. It, to me, it's almost like if, if there's a capacity for understanding something that is structured and like a hunger for seeing structure, then why is there such a resistance? to considering dispensational theology. Um, I don't know, that's just kind of a, a question to pose to you. What, what is it about the younger generations that are open to this but not open to that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. That's a question in my mind, too. Uh, but she is right. Dispensationalists are in the minority. And one thing that kind of occurs to me is true dispensational study of all the details of what's revealed, that takes a lot of brain power, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of research, versus something that's pretty simple. Jesus is going to come back someday. We forget about the tribulation, forget about the rapture. Jesus is going to come back and render by the movement. That's it. Simplicity. And, it's, and it unfortunately has become the vogue in, in academic circles, in various seminaries. But it is the way it is. But I don't entirely know. I think a lot of it at this point is dispensationalism is not predominant enough that a lot of people are hearing it, or as many people should be hearing it. Any other questions, comments? Alright. We've covered all the technical stuff. The rest of chapter 24, 25 is going to be more parables. And it's going to be a little bit more fun and not so much blowing your mind. Right? <laughs> <laughs>